Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Addictive Pod. It's your host Adrian here, and today I'm joined by a recovered drug addict, therapist, and author. My guest tells his story of experiencing abuse and hitting bottom at a young age and beginning the recovery process in jail. We also discuss his book, The New Prophet, a novel full of metaphors for spiritual recovery. Please join me in welcoming Kevin McNevin Clark. Kevin Clark, how's it going, man? Good. It's been a good day. Really, really good glad day. to uh, glad to have you on the show and talk to you about your your addiction and recovery story. And um, I'm I'm excited to talk about your book as well. Uh, when did when did was your book released? Uh, beginning of September. Like I think the initial publication or publishing date was yeah September sixth, I think. And you wrote and you wrote it in recovery, right? Yes, I wrote it in 2020, actually. So since the pandemic began, um, I wrote it. And yeah, recovery, I wouldn't have been able to write it had I not been in recovery, that's for sure. Um, But yeah, I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. Obviously, your story has a lot of uh, background before we get to the book. So um, when's a good place to start? When do you think that it makes sense to start talking about your behavior as maybe addictive or, or compulsive? Probably pretty young as a child, actually, Um, because I think, you know, I had a lot of traits and then, you know, I mean, I I really believe in like the biopsychosocial approach of addiction. So it's kind of integrated, you know, Mm, mm. genetic loads the gun, environment pulls the trigger. um, So takes a little bit of a perfect storm and that can probably depend on whether, you know, that kind of determines, am I going to be an early addict like me who kind of bottomed out early as well, or maybe like a later stage where like you undergo physiological organ changes, you know, and become dependent that way. Mm. So, I mean, for me, I think there was concern. My mother's pretty wise and I think she, she had concern about my personality and again, Adrian, thanks for having me on the show. It really is a privilege to be on the show. I mean, always. Oh, happy to have you, man. Happy to have you. Always good to talk about recovery. Um, so as a child, I mean, I was a big feeler. I had big, loud feelings. I didn't, my mother told me this story after I got sober, actually. And it was, I think she told me right before I told my story for the first time at a podium at a 12-step meeting. And she told me when I was a child, I don't know if I impulsively did this or if it was a pure accident, because I don't really remember with clarity, but I held the door open and one of her cats, she had two cats, Salt and Pepper, which were like her beloved cats and Pepper got out and never came back. And however I internalized their reaction um, was I think probably the beginning of like, my shame cycle because she told me she found me outside. I was like four years old and I was like sitting there hitting my head up with a wiffle bat saying, I want to die. I want to die. I want to die. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, pretty early on I was, you know, uh, I struggled with anger issues. Um, and again, I had a mother that like, you know, taught me to draw my feelings and do deep breathing and that kind of stuff, you know? So she was pretty emotionally intelligent. 
um, which was great for me and probably helped tremendously, you know, that I had a supportive mom like that. Um, I was also really outgoing as a kid. Um, I had an entrepreneurial spirit. My first business was selling walking sticks. Then the next did thing you I'm did doing, you make them or how did you how did you get them? They were they were actually like twigs. Okay, okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was so little and I just wanted to make some money because we didn't have a lot of money when we were kids. Yeah, uh, my family didn't have a lot of money, and I think uh, and my brother remembers hearing them fight about money, which I don't remember with clarity. He's a little bit older than me, so I probably figured you know I got to like kind of go get my own money, and uh, which plays into my addiction later for sure. So I went out and I sold walking sticks. I made a paper mask business in kindergarten. Then I was mowing lawns in elementary school. Then I learned how to be a magician in fifth grade. And I did parties for like 50 bucks a party, which was like sweet money for a fifth grader. Yeah. And then, you know, I fell into addiction and then I started selling drugs. Um, And now I run my- How old were you? How old were you at that point for selling drugs? Was that like high high school or? Yeah. High school is when I started selling it. Um, I started using it when I was 13. So between being this outgoing kid who was like in the gifted intelligent program, all that good stuff. Um, and teenage years, I was abused. Um, mm. you know, I was actually sexually abused by a family friend. And so I think that really caused me to shut down part of my personality. I became extremely guarded uh, the world wasn't safe anymore. I couldn't trust people. And, you know, it was almost like when I first got offered a chance to buy weed in seventh grade, um, it was almost like the, the, the clouds parted and the angels sang. And I was like, this is what I've been waiting for. What was it about that? Uh, what was it about the weed that seemed like almost an answer to your problem? Like, what, what did it do for you? I don't know. It's so weird because I don't remember like having too much knowledge or information about, you know, THC. Um, But it's just like that part of me knew like, this is what you need in order to like keep surviving at this point. Um, Because, you know, teenage years are hard anyway with everything else going on, all the physiological changes, but let alone, but I was also finding a way to, uh, live with the guilt and the shame and the pain at that point. And I've said it before and I say it often, like Eckhart Tolle says, addiction begins in pain and it ends mm-hmm. in pain, you know? So for me, it began in a lot of pain. I didn't use like, I used pretty heavily from the beginning, you know? Um, I smoked weed in short order afterwards. I drank like probably a week or two later. And the first time I drank, I drank to get drunk to the point where I was having dry heaves, you know, in my friend's driveway. Um, and then I did it again. Um, so I, uh, I liked that oblivion, that just total escape, full flight from reality that they talk about in the 12 step literature. Yeah. That was my aim and my goal. And, you know, I got pretty good at it and it got harder and harder to get even like the more substances I had, the more different I had, I, I could have the best drugs in the world, but eventually that solution, as you know, doesn't work anymore. And it's like, you can't distract yourself with enough people or enough anything um, because you're still left with those feelings, even though they're dulled, even though they're like buried, it's still like what once was a solution becomes the problem 
and it's no longer, you know, effective. It's crazy that, because I, I hear a lot of people's stories with, with substance abuse and it seems like oblivion is kind of later on down their path, right? It starts as like a social lubricant. It starts as like a, oh, this is just what my friends did or this is what my family did. But for you, it was like, it almost seemed like the first and second time the, the intent was to completely escape and to completely sort of feel nothing because you're feeling so much with everything that's going on. So it, it almost yeah. makes sense that like you hit bottom as young as you did and came into recovery so young. It's like you, you skipped right to that sort of last stage intent of use, which really takes out so many people. Yeah. Yeah. So in a sense, I'm grateful for it, you know, um, because it expedited the process for me. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, I, I am grateful for it, really. And what did you start to do when, like, if once it started not to work, uh, like, how did you react to that? What did you start to do? I mean, it was around that time. So around this time, I'd already been arrested for, like, for, oh, wow. you know, I got, like, a possession charge when I was 19. And I barely graduated high school. I squeaked by. <laughs> And because the school was the first thing to lose priority for me. Um, so I'd already been arrested and it was like, you know, there came a time, I remember this one night in particular where people had left my house and I was all sorts of fucked up on lots of different drugs because I mixed, I was just a garbage can yeah I'm, kitchen sink the kitchen yeah. sink as they call yes. it just like yeah. yeah throw everything in there yeah. for sure um yeah i mean i would test stuff out because i'd be 12 beers in before anybody even looked it up to tell me like what what it was you know once some of that like a lot of the lab stuff started coming around oh wow so as i was saying i was uh I was, uh, there was this evening and I actually, I don't talk about this part of my story that much. Sometimes I refer to it, but people left my house and all of a sudden I was thinking like, I should go take, cause I'm selling drugs at this point. So I'm like, I should go take my pistol and go find that guy that abused me when I was a kid and go shoot him. You know what I mean? I started like thinking like seriously. Yeah. And I've always had a really healthy conscience so I was in a lot of turmoil, even that having that thought. And before that, I started to view myself as like a monster. I would ask people that I was selling drugs to, like, do you guys think I'm a monster? You know, and I remember one guy was like a savage, maybe, but not a monster. Um, but that was what I, who I believed I had become, you know, because I was so disconnected from my truth at that point. So... I remember being like that and I felt like at that point in my life, I was, I had that soul sickness. I was very spiritually sick. Like I was losing, like almost getting to that place where you cross a line that you can never come back from, uh, where you just lose your soul. So what instead happened was I ended up, I just wanted to be loved and I just wanted to go home. That was like the pinnacle point that changed everything for me. And I ended up hospitalized because I hadn't been sleeping or eating and using lots of stuff. And, you know, and I had people that loved me and I had a home to go to, 
but to me like that's the epitome of the spiritual sickness it's like this homesickness and just cut off from unable to like experience that love yeah it doesn't matter where you are it doesn't matter what people are saying to you it's it's really internal i think it's a scary place to be it's a scary place to be definitely and that's when i actually started to have a spiritual awakening i hadn't i didn't get sober yet i just knew i just all of a sudden saw everything differently it was like i started to wake up i started to see the way my mind was like setting traps for itself uh see all the rationalizations um it's like i started to see through the delusion a little bit but i couldn't stop that was where i didn't realize how powerless i was i had no idea so when i was hospitalized i i did that what they refer to as the solemn oath where i every cell of my body i'm in i'm not going to use when i leave here and i believed it you know and then i got out that day convinced a friend to get me high got drunk the next day and then two weeks later was asking my mother to take me to the hospital instead of going to the hospital in the back of a police car naked, which is what happened the first time. Yikes. So, and at that point, I was like, yeah. So at that point I realized, wait, I can't stop doing this. So I've got to try and control it somehow. Um, Cause I still wasn't ready to like surrender um, because it was the only thing, you know, that had been helping helping me survive for a long time you know uh i wasn't ready to part ways with it so i was ready to, i was like i'll do therapy i'll do psychiatry i'll do those things but i'm not going to go to meetings or anything like that which my parents had wanted me to do so i moved out of their house and i moved to like live with some guys in radford who helped take care of me and i'd been doing okay controlling it up until shortly after i moved i was doing like the beer and marijuana plan and then just the light stuff just a little bit to take the edge off yeah like this will be fine there won't be any (laughs) negative consequences yeah but you know we'd never killed anybody (laughs) yeah that's not a quote don't take me that's just (laughs) what people say (laughs) yeah yeah sure yeah it's easy to not see like how that kind of keeps the door open for everything else um so what i what happened next next thing i know there's like a big bowl of uh southern comfort and we're all like, they're all drinking out of it with straws. So I take a straw and I start drinking out of it and I black out. And then I come to locked in my bedroom by myself with a bag of cocaine. And at mm. that point, that's when I really start to like hate myself is when I cross that line. Cause I don't like the way uh, it's like, I love the way it makes me feel, but I hate the way it makes me feel. Uh, and then I just accept all other drugs after I cross that line kind of mm. thing. And how old were you at that point? I was 21 okay. and then I moved back to Manassas, Virginia. I lived in downtown Manassas with really, actually I moved in with the guy who sold me that first bag of weed in seventh grade. <laughs> Connections. Kind of, Connections. Yeah. Man. Yeah. And then he later got sober. Okay. Um, I moved back with him. Then I got arrested and that was what I actually needed to save my life. Um, so December 14, 2006, you know, that's my sobriety day. I don't know how long I've been unconscious by the time the police knocked down my bedroom door or my apartment door. Um, but I came to, and that's when I finally, uh, you know, found recovery. So did, did somebody called them or what happened there? Uh, I mean, I think, so somebody got caught with like a pound of weed in Fairfax and they rolled over. 
on me and they staked out my apartment and got enough like I think they found some like weed leaves like in the trash and they used that to get a warrant and you know they came in so so were you were you facing charges at that point or what was the what was the situation with the police yeah I was charged with four felonies with like a maximum time of up to 40 years in prison wow which freaked me out because I never you don't really think about how hefty these everything you're doing is you know and you're like four years um and i always told myself i could do a year if i had to and i ended up doing 11 months um you know i didn't have much of a record before then i had the possession charge when i was 19 um but uh yeah so that's what happened tell tell me more about that experience because i find um i i haven't met any i haven't heard of anybody who goes to prison and doesn't find um at least in the recovery rooms who doesn't find a spiritual enlightenment there or doesn't find something about themselves there. So I'm curious what you came out of prison with and what, what you learned about yourself. I got there and at first just with, went through withdrawals and lots of sweating and sleeping and not eating and um, all that discomfort for, you know, a couple of weeks or whatever. I didn't, wasn't given a bond. I realized I was going to be there a while and Initially, I wasn't really willing to do much. I think I started going to church first. I went to church because I just figured I need some, you know, I need some sort of help. Um, but I still didn't go to twelve-step meetings. They had them in the prison, though, yeah. Yeah, they had them where I was. Yeah. Do you think like did you have some block in your head? Do you think like just the idea of that was like would would make you mad, or what, what do you think that was about? Uh, well, I was mad already, (laughs) but I think, uh, I remember thinking that's where alcohol goes to die. I knew they talked that day at a time stuff, but, uh, but I thought it was a con because I'm like, they're really talking about not drinking the rest rest of your life. life. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I didn't really understand what a day at a time meant. I just thought it was like a gimmick. You know, I didn't know it just meant stay in the present essentially. So yeah i mean i i went in there my family came to visit me for the first time and through the glass i saw how broken they were and they probably looked at me like that i don't know how many times before but i had never been separated from the substances long enough to uh see clearly the devastation and pain and hurt that i was causing the people that loved me the most wow when i saw that something inside of me broke and i started like you know cry um and Again, they talk in the 12-step literature about like a chink in the armor ego that lets in the sunlight of the spirit. And mm-hmm. for me, like that was what that was. And I remember I went back to the dorm because I was in a dorm with like 30 other guys. I went back to the dorm and the next time they called for a 12-step meeting, I said to this guy, Keith, who ended up being one of the guys who saved my life. There's three people, three wise men that came into my life um, and without them, I wouldn't be here today. And Keith and this other guy were going to um, the 12-step meeting. I was like, oh, what are you guys doing? They're like, oh, we're going to, you know, this meeting. You should come. It's really cool. (laughs) And I remember I was like, no, I don't think so. Maybe next week. Um, I still, like, was sketched out about it. Yeah. And they came back, and they gave me the book Came to Believe, which was some 12-step literature. And I read that book over the next week and I came to the meetings 
And at first, yeah, I thought everybody in there was just a bunch of pissed off people because I projected my reality onto everyone. Um, then I came to, it's like that fog started to lift. And I came to believe as I started to follow the simple suggestions, first and foremost, and most paramount, just to keep coming back, you know, something that simple. Because um, then if I'm able to do that, I can learn a whole lot more. Mm. And in, in that meeting, I met the second wise man, we'll say, that came into my life. And his name was Jim. He's a World War II vet. And Jim, I mean, he taught me so much stuff. He just was full of wisdom and kindness and love and was like a grandfather figure to me for sure. Keith, Keith, the guy who took me in there, he was kind of like a brother. He died clean, um, had a beautiful life. Jim died clean, obviously died sober with over 40 years sobriety. Wow. Rest in peace. So both of those guys were huge. Um, and without them, I, I really don't think I'd be here. So they taught me a lot. So they, did they start to take you through the steps while you were in prison? Yeah. So Keith, he had already been down the road for a couple of years. So he'd already actually been clean a while and he had been in recovery before. And he was working with a sponsor on the outside that he would talk to on the phone and everything. And the sponsor was like, yeah, you know, you can do like, so he took me, I did my fifth step with Keith in an attorney booth, which was really cool um, later on because Keith and I both got into this drug program because after I got into the jail, I realized how convoluted and really just straight up insane. Some of the old timers in that system were mm. and like how they thought it was okay to like spend their time here and go back out on the streets, run around and come back in here. Mm. And I don't know. I had enough sense because I hadn't been institutionalized, I guess. Um, to where I didn't want that to be my life. I knew I couldn't get this time back. Um, and I did every single thing I could while I was there to benefit my situation. I took all the help available. You know, I went to the, I went to church still. Uh, I still took the medications that were prescribed to me. Um, and I entered this six, I did a six month drug treatment program. I did a four month faith or four and a half months. I was in a faith based program that I completed I did a college class, four levels of anger management, you know, like went to any meeting that was available, uh, attended like a, a, you know, a sexual abuse group with like another couple guys or whatever. So I really took any help that was there. And uh, again, I probably needed all that help because I was really sick. Um, I couldn't string together a sentence, Hmm. let alone function in society i wasn't a functioning addict you know except that i functioned as an addict so yeah as soon as you took away that crutch right it's like what's left what's uh what's left without any medication basically it's Um, scary it's like how am i even gonna what do i do after i wake up in the morning yeah if you're using it you know to exist yeah that's all it is is that hollow existence you know when did it start to change for you? Like, was it, um, did you experience at all during that 11 month period of waking up and um, being a little bit more peaceful, a little bit happier waking up? Or was it not until later once you were on the outside and deeper into recovery that you started to experience that? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Like you mentioned earlier, I found more freedom in there than I had ever had before. Mm. Um, like I became very free. It was, I mean, I was, I was a believer in recovery for sure and willing to do whatever it took by the time I left there. But yeah, I mean, it, it was a process for sure. I mean, I went through the initial pink cloud of just being physically off drugs for the first time in 10 years for longer than eight days or a hospitalization or whatever. Um, that felt good just to be physically free of it. But then, you know, all that discomfort started raining down on me. And that's why I had to start working the steps. And I worked that fifth step, which I think bought me a lot of time mm. for sure. You know, the, the fifth step promises, you can look the world squarely in the eye again. Um, you know, feel as though the drink problem has been removed. Like we're walking. Yeah, man, people focus so much on the ninth. They focus so much on the ninth step promises, but you're right. Like fifth step promises are <laughs> solid. I think there's, um, are there, are there promises after every step or just five, nine and 12? I think just five, nine and 12. There's other promises in the book, okay. but like those, are, but they're not like, like the fifth promises. ones are fire. Yeah. yeah. They're pretty like pretty big promises. <laughs> yeah. So, and yeah, many of us feel as if the problem has been removed, right? Like that's, yeah. that's a big promise. If you're coming in there feeling like it's impossible to quit this for life. Right. Yeah. Cause you've just been in obsession forever. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was my experience. It was like, I started to finally unpack like that heavy bag of, I refer to it in the book that I wrote the heavy bag of meaningless boulders, which is like, mm. it was just shame, you know, all this shame that I've been carrying around. Um, I couldn't look someone in the eye. You know, I definitely couldn't look reality in the eye, let alone like even another person. Mm-hmm. So. What was the experience of coming out of prison and then looking normal people in the eye and, and looking like, yeah, coming face to face with that reality of, of your, your real life sort of resuming? So, well, to be clear, it was a jail. I mean, I know that like, to a lot of people, there's not a differentiation, but if anyone was like listening to this, they're like, oh, it's, that's not, you know, I just want to be clear. Like it was a jail, not a prison. And the only reason I was able to stay in the jail was because I was doing those programs and all that stuff. Um, but the way it was like coming out, I mean, I didn't know how to have a job because I had never really had one. Um, I didn't really know how to be around people. I wasn't decisions were overwhelming right because i had like a choice of like two deodorants while i was in there <laughs> and you get out and there's like rainbow scented deodorant and, uh you know oh my god magic leprechaun blood scented deodorant yeah Whatever. made from the <laughs> leaves of a himalayan tree picked by monkeys yeah yeah exactly you're better at it than i am. yeah <laughs> Yeah. So, and then you go to a restaurant and instead of like just having one tray with food on it, there's like, you know, a litany of options. Mm. So I remember that was a little bit challenging at first and I would just go to like a go-to like, well, I like chicken Parmesan. So I'll just get that everywhere I go, Mm. you know? Um, So there was an adjustment period. I know the first time I went to a young people's 12 step meeting, uh, let's see, I got out November 15th. 2007 and then i went to uh and this is another thing that might be key is like as far as staying sober is getting to a meeting the first day you get out of treatment or jail i know that that's uh old 
advice that continues to be given, but I think it's extremely important because of how good we are at making excuses and we get sober when we stop making excuses mm. and mm. kind of just let other people do our thinking for a little while until we can trust our thinking again, which comes. Oh man, that's so key. And I think it's, uh, it's one of the hardest and easiest parts of recovery because like the initially, I think it's the hardest to kind of give up control. But then as soon as you do that, it's so easy. It's just like, okay, the sponsor is telling you to go to this meeting at this time. You just go. The sponsor is telling you to write this down at, on this day. You do it because you just, you have all your trust in one person. And, and for a while, I think that's really important as sort of laying a basis of what it means to live well and what it means to live a happy life, to really put your trust in that person. So I'm really glad you had that. Yeah, and being teachable, like if I'm powerless, then I need to act like I'm powerless. Yeah, you know? which means yeah. like they're saying there's a path and a way, and they did it, and they're they haven't drank in X amount of time, and actually seeing there's like a light on behind their eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what attracted me to it. Because at first I thought, do I want what these people have? You know, it's a guy from World War Two. I'm relating out automatically. I'm like mm-hmm. these guys don't get it. They don't know what it's like to be me. I'm unique and all my thoughts and feelings and problems, no one could possibly understand me. And then I saw like, then I started to notice the lightness to them. And that's just kind of how I described it. Not even like necessarily the light behind their eyes, but there's just a lightness to them. Like they carried themselves lighter. Um, Like life was lighter. And uh, that was what, that's when I decided if I want what they have, I'll do what they do kind of thing. Man, that reminds me the way you describe that. My first sponsor, he didn't have a job. He didn't have a house. He was living at his uh, buddy's place. Didn't have a girlfriend. Was like hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. And this guy's smile would like brighten the room. Like, it's just incredible. Like he just, the way he walked around, he was like, he had not a care in the world. And it was because of the spiritual peace that he had found. And I think Mm -hmm. that like now he's married and he has a job and he has a life and everything and recovery has given him all that. But I think I realized when I was working with him that those, those things don't matter as much as the spiritual piece. Um, so right. I, yeah. I know exactly what you mean by those light walking people. It's yeah. It's good that, good that you were able to see that. Cause a lot of people early on, they want to find somebody with like, you know, that has sim- very similar experiences or has what they want in like the physical mm-hmm. sense. But you know, once the spiritual house is in order, everything else falls into place is what we're taught. So, we don't need to go about it, you know, bass backwards. We can just kind of <laughs> follow some directions and start the inside job, you know. No, I was de- I was just desperate. I didn't I didn't I wasn't picky about who I was going to have uh, sponsored. Yeah. To be honest, but desperation's great. Yeah. So tell me more about that uh, about sort of that er- the early period, sort of with the young person's meeting and. Oh I'm yeah. Curious, like, when did you first recognize that there were other people? struggling that like might need your help when did you kind of turn that page um well i mean i think even when i was in treatment i kind of i was i mean i was probably one of the more sincerely working at it people in there because and a lot of them even admitted they're there to get their ticket punched yeah they're there they're, it's all legal you know but there were some people that were definitely about it and i consider myself to be one of those people i mean i've stayed sober um but i knew then so that's the third guy that came to save my life was carl my therapist and he approached me with such genuine uh you know i describe it as uh 
he had he listened with empathy he saw me through eyes of compassion and he was just you know he showed up with a safe presence for me Mm. and i was able to like trust this man and uh you know he inspired me he's so like on fire about his job and so passionate and a lot of stuff he taught me i still remember um you know today and actually i'm still in touch with him sometimes i talk to him every couple few years or whatever i I reached out to him after i wrote this book and i told him and uh, he he was psyched on it he uh he inspired me to be a therapist um obviously before that i got very involved in 12-step service Mm -hmm. service work and sponsorship and service positions and all that kind of stuff i took meetings into that same jail for 11 years um wow so that was extremely helpful i just and i think even for my parents they were really involved helping out in the community so service was instilled in me mm-hmm. so and i had lived so selfishly for a long time i didn't i didn't know what to do with myself um i hadn't really had much purpose and through helping other people i mean i mean ultimately i I'm of the opinion that it's kind of everybody's purpose on earth. Just help each other out a little bit and the world's so much of a better place. Yeah, I and agree. If you can help one person the way that you were helped and you've seen, you know, like how long have you been in recovery? Uh, coming up on four years. Awesome. Yeah. So you've seen already like how that ripples outward and makes the world that like so much more of a better place oh, compared to like how like, compared to that tornado going through people's lives and tearing shit up, you know, we're so, like, we're like single nodes in a network, you know, like it, we, we don't exist in a bubble. We exist in these connections. So it's everything that we do is, I agree, man. I really like how you said that. And, and, but going back to Carl, because I'm really curious about the, I also like that his name is Carl because I'm a big fan of Carl Jung. Um, I love Carl Jung. <laughs> but uh, going back to Carl. So he played, he was one of the three wise men, but he has a different approach, right? He's not a, he's not a sponsor. What do you mm-hmm. think is the difference between a therapist and a sponsor? Uh, well, I mean, he didn't tell me much about himself. He kept it, you know, very much about me, you know, in a 12 step meeting, you're supposed to talk about yourself. Um, you know, he would talk, there was little bits he would drop here and there. Um, so that was one big difference. Another thing is, you know, he had a lot of knowledge. So he understood, not, not only did he understand like the 12 step framework and all that, you know, he understood the science of it. Cause we did six months of modules, right? Like mm-hmm. one, one whole month on feelings management, one whole month on criminal thinking, one whole month on like addiction in the brain, one whole month on the 12 steps. And I don't even remember what the other ones were, but so it was, uh, you know, he, he educated me and, you know, facilitated these groups. Like, I mean, a therapist, what's cool is like in AA, they're pretty much limited to like sharing their experience, strength and hope with the 12 steps, but a therapist can really like help you with, you know, the holistic picture of your life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also they know they're trained. They're not even, not just trained. Cause I, you know, I talk about it in my book too, like an intuitive counselor, there's like an intuitiveness, you know, exactly what to say to somebody, you know, when like they're going through it somehow a trained therapist 
and not that someone in the 12-step rooms can't doesn't have that ability but he would say something that probably none of those they'd probably say it a completely different way because of like the conditioning of the 12-step rooms Mm. um but he would say it in this way where it was like i was just able to like forgive like it just whatever there were there was like it cleared up a lot of confusion Mm. um you know it let me know like i was justified and like the anger that i felt because I think I, I imagine that they'd they'd approach some similar problems. Like for example, anger you might have towards your abuser, right? You'd probably yeah. approach that very differently with a therapist versus with a sponsor. But sure. I like because I've been thinking about this myself with like I wanna follow the same path. I wanna become a therapist and I have experience sponsoring people as well. And mm-hmm. I've been thinking a lot about sort of those different approaches. So I was wondering, or even from your own experience, right? Because you've done both as well. You've been a yeah. sponsor you've been a therapist. Um, what do you think are some of the advantages or, or disadvantages of, of each one or, or why are both important? Yeah. I mean, they're both important. It's hard to, as a therapist, and especially if you're of the school of thought that you kind of believe that you were born with the therapist mind, which I kind of do believe for me, mm my science project when I was in elementary school wasn't a volcano or a probability thing. I did a behavioral science project where I sat in the back of my parents' station wagon and I waved and I recorded like, did the old guy wave back? Was was there a couple? (laughs) That's so cool. You know, so like I was already thinking differently, like about psychology from a very early age. It just interested me. I got like third place because obviously it wasn't as like well organized. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, so I think it's always been in me. So it's hard to like just be I mean, I think if I had a cookie cutter approach to recovery and I think early on I probably had more of like you know this is the way it is sort of thing, but the more you sponsor people uh in my experience, the more you kind of let go of that controlling idea and become more flexible and you don't treat everyone the exact same way. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a lot of crossover for sure, but the boundaries mm-hmm. are different. You know, I'm not as a sponsor, I might pick someone up and go to a meeting as a therapist. That's not having it. Yeah. Yeah. You're more, it's more of like a friend uh, or like big brother experience as opposed to like, this is a professional. Yeah. The, the boundaries are definitely different. There are, and, but then again, like the boundaries of a sponsor and the boundaries of like your best friend in the rooms also very different so there has to there is a little bit of difference there yeah and I, I think there's benefits to both like having the boundaries I think that dealing with sexual trauma really needs those boundaries like to yeah. have a very safe place as opposed to kind of a bit more messy or maybe not messy but at least more um, open discussion in in the rooms um, right. but uh, I don't know both both have benefited me a lot for for different reasons definitely Um, 100% are you still are you still seeing clients as a addictions counselor right now or doing anything over zoom I am I'm doing both I see well I work at a treatment center part-time and they we house them so I see those in person and the intensive outpatient program is all virtual so we do that virtually and uh then at my private practice I yeah I see them both 
And what's that, uh, what's that experience been like for you more recently with um, 14 years under your yeah, belt? Yeah, I celebrated 14 years in December. Congrats, man. Congrats. Well, I mean, what do you mean exactly? <laughs> what's it like helping somebody out with 14 years under your belt versus that the early days sponsoring somebody in your first or second year, let's say? Uh, I didn't, I still had a lot to learn about powerlessness. You know, it's the first and second year. Like I remember I sp- the first guy I sponsored real young guy stayed sober for a while. I want to say at least 18 months, maybe a couple of years, but then he went back out and I started at first, I was like, what did I do wrong? You know, like I, uh, mm-hmm. I was taking ownership. Um, and the more I sponsor people, the more, and the more I've worked in th- as a therapist, I realized I can only, work as hard as this person's willing to work and actually they have to work harder than I'm willing to work. I can't ever work harder than them Mm. um, because that's not actually helping them. Um, And I really have to meet people exactly where they are and people are going to be in different places and that's totally okay. And you have a lot more peace. You don't have to take stuff home with you because as a therapist, you need to have some sort of emotional boundaries or you'll assuredly burn out. Mm-hmm. where you're not responsible yeah yeah you just have to know did i make the best decisions in the moment you know and that's where it's like so even as a therapist i don't give too much advice unless uh it's a really really bad idea <laughs> <You know? laughs> and that's the same thing my sponsor told me he's like i'm not going to tell you like what to do and all that because you know i'm not going to play god in your life but if you tell me you're going to go rob a bank, I might try and stop you, you know? Fair enough. So, yeah. But as a therapist, you try, you really do try to help someone find the answer themselves. Mm-hmm. So you might even know the answer, but it, you know how important it is that they come arrive at it themselves. So that's where the art of asking questions is so helpful, which you're going to get even better at as a podcast host. So it's going to serve you, you know? I hope so. I hope All so. this stuff is going to serve you for sure. I mean, I definitely need some work on it. I feel like I've been asking you some confusing questions today. I think it's because I'm still kind of working out thinking over these things, right? Like the the whole idea of sponsorship and, and therapy is something that I'm still, that's why I asked you a bad question. I think it's, I'm, I'm mulling it over. I'm still trying to figure out what I'm uh, looking for. Uh, I don't think it's a bad question at all. I mean, it's it's a good question. I mean, a sponsor, they really, their job is to take someone through the 12 steps. Mm. Therapists, like, you you know they're gonna help you with everything in your life and sometimes i think the 12 steps rooms even just in the time i've been there they've evolved a lot more where you can talk about a lot more things because people are Mm -hmm. realizing like this all is part of it you know only the first step says alcohol or addiction the rest is exactly the rest of you know how do i live my life and to do that, I've got to address these underlying causes and conditions, the defective conditioning that happened. Sometimes it goes, involves healing trauma, going back to therapy, all that sort of stuff. So, Oh, man, I love that you mentioned that because that's I think so, people ignore that so much. And that's actually what my podcast is all about, because alcohol is only mentioned in the first step. Um, gambling is only mentioned in the first step of the 12 steps of Gambling Anonymous. Like mm-hmm. sex is only mentioned in the first step. Really, it's like it's about these underlying conditions that all addicts from all different walks of life and all different substances and behaviors, they share, they share those experiences. So that's, that's exactly why I started this podcast actually. Yeah. That's awesome because yeah, there's the the emotional dependency is what's kind of underneath all addictive behaviors. Mm. 
my, I need something out there to make in here. Okay. You know, until it comes from within, you're always going to be without. Mm. So it's like, you're always trying to seek like that validation, that next high, whatever it is, you know? So. I want to get into the, that exactly like how it comes from within. And I think, um, I think your book goes more in depth into this, the new profit. So how about you tell us a bit about uh, your book? What motivated you to start writing it? So like I said, I work in the addiction treatment field and actually rewind back to Carl. He was the first person that told me ever that he thought I should write a book. And then he said that again to me and like another time, cause I came and like spoke at like the family program, like after I've been sober a while to like inspire hope for these families, I guess. And my sponsor who I've been working with since two and a half years sober um, and I have known for about six months before that. He uh, he told me like he really sees me writing a book, right? So I started to have this knowing inside that I'm gonna write books. Um, there's a lot of writers in my family. I never thought I was the writer one, you know, because my brother's excellent writer. He helped me a lot with the, he helped me with editing and stuff. So I always figured, you know, he's the guy writing a book, not me. But you know, it became this truth that I knew. Um, the Prophet by Khalil Gibran. I found that in a used bookstore. It just called called to me. Um, I was actually picking up like a Dr. Wayne Dyer used book, probably on inspiration. So it's funny that I saw like The Prophet there, which was the golden boss lettering. I bought the book, I read it. And then a few years ago, I studied it with a group of guys who I consider to be my inner circle. And we actually, we meet every Tuesday night from p.m. to 10 p.m. Right now we meet virtually and have this whole pandemic, but it's like a super intimate group of guys and we're all working on like bettering ourselves, you know, emotionally, spiritually uh, growing. So it's not a 12 step meeting, but it's all guys that I met through recovery. Wow. So we study spiritual literature, we check in about our lives, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, to get back to the book, I, uh, we studied the book and shortly thereafter, I, it came to me that the first book I write is going to be The New Prophet. I don't know what it's going to look like exactly. And it just kind of like became this like thought on the back burner. And in the treatment center that I work at, Recovery Unplugged, we have a principle every day. So it could be like honesty, open-mindedness, all this stuff. So I start teaching on this stuff a lot. And as I teach on it, I start to have even more like revelations about it. Um, So I think I started writing the book unconsciously for a while before I actually sat down and wrote it. And then um, earlier this year, I just had this creative outpouring of the outline and I started to like, wow. I knew who the character's names would be. I knew like the premise of the story because it is a lot different than The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. I would never try and recreate that masterpiece, um, but it's definitely like largely inspired by that work, which was written in 1923 and published in 1928, I think. If you could sum up in just a few sentences, like what the main thing you wanted to impart with this book was, what, what would you say? Um. To heal hurts and inspire hope, I guess, if I were to summarize it very briefly, 
And what I've found that it's doing, which I'm really pleased with, is people are finding themselves in it um, by the way that I'm describing emotional experiences. Because, like, you know, there's excerpts on anger or fear or inner child, and it's reflecting back to them, and it's reflecting within, you know, and they're having emotional experiences reading it. So they're actually doing some, like, reprocessing mm, of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I'm actually helping people. And that like, that's really like the biggest goal. Like, can I help people with my writing? Cause a therapist, I can help a room full of people or one-on-one and that ripples outward. But if I could write a book and it helps people and that like, then I can cast a bigger net. And I just think I've learned a lot. And if I can save some people some steps of like what to go through mm. and how to get there um then all the better and i think the world needs it and i think the timing is well because i kind of see like the age of ego crumbling mm. and uh you know the awakening of people's hearts which is you know wow i so, hope you're right i hope, I hope you're right so too Maybe, I mean, COVID is the, uh, the litmus test, right? It's like, how comfortable are people with, without distraction? How comfortable are we just in our own homes? Just uh, not doing as much as we used to, not having as much as we used to. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's, I think it definitely has exacerbated, you know, some mental health symptoms. Absolutely. Um, you know, overdoses have unfortunately gone up tremendously, yeah. which is terrible. But I also think, you know, just like pain is a touchstone of spiritual growth for the individual, I think for the collective consciousness, it mm. can be too. So well said. it sucks. All this stuff sucks. And I wish it didn't have to happen. And then and maybe it doesn't have to happen. But I do believe that like a lot of good can come from it. Mm. You know, because it's, it's causing us to really look at ourselves. A lot of people are getting help that wouldn't get help before. Mm-hmm. Um, and people are really you know, it's really teaching us like what's really, what really matters, like our connection in life. Yeah. I I think it's challenging that whole culture of more, that whole culture of consumption. And like, I want as much as possible because yeah, like you said, you, you end up choosing who you're going to spend time with and talk to during this, like during this whole COVID experience. Right. And just go hang out with everybody. I mean, it's irresponsible. I mean, in my opinion, Yeah, so, I mean, let's let's hope not. If, if someone out there is listening and just hanging out with everybody, just chill out for a second. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, I'm really looking forward to reading your book. Um, I wish I had a chance to read it before this. And I think what you said about the power of books, um, you mentioned Eckhart Tolle earlier, and I think the power of now, right? I mean, that's that yeah. book, is, it's an experience. Like you, you engage with a text and... Um, the words that he uses really bring about an experience of the present moment, which I think is the books that can do that are, are worth a lot of money. That's for sure. They're worth a lot more than they cost. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what's so powerful about if we want to call it spiritual wisdom for lack of a better word, it's almost has an aliveness to it, you know, that speaks to different people differently depending on where they're at, but wherever it is, it's like showing you a truth. Mm -hmm. So yeah, books like The Power of Now, A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle, and, you know, lots of other books. There's a lot of really amazing books out there. The Four Agreements, you know, stuff like that, that, like, really can. And I think my book, 
the new prophet, um, it really points a lot to the inside job and the emotional experience Mm. because for me, addiction is so much a feelings disease. Mm -hmm. Obviously, like I wanted to change the way I felt because I could not, I couldn't take it. Um, and now I realize my emotional sensitivity is this great gift because it's allowed me to get so in touch with this stuff, you know, and when you know yourself, you kind of like get, you kind of know everybody, <laughs> you mm. know, cause we're, we're so much more alike than we are different as people. And the more intimately, you know, yourself, I think I saw an Aristotle quote today. It's like knowing yourself is the beginning of wisdom mm. or something. So yeah, Socrates is just know thyself, which is a, a little <laughs> a cliffhanger. Little yeah, yeah. It's like, all right. <laughs> uh, but no, man. And the flip side of that is when you don't know yourself, right? In addiction, when you, when you haven't done any of that work, you can't relate sure. to anybody. You feel cut off. You feel alone. It's yeah. such an interesting, I, I've never thought of it that way, but that's, that's hundred. that was true for me. I, I felt like nobody knew me and I didn't really know anybody. Yeah. Yeah. That's the spiritual homelessness kind of. Yeah. Before we close, is there anything else that you'd want to share with somebody that might be listening to this and really questioning how they can recover from addiction? Yeah. Um, you know, like I said early on, remaining teachable was a big part of it. So keeping that beginner's mind that you never quite have it all figured out. Um, in the beginning, you definitely don't have it figured out. We we get humbled until we get to a place where we can humble ourselves. Mm. So, and then I guess what Carl told me when I saw that since I was in the county program, I did the 10-month aftercare. There was, I was the only one that finished it. Everyone else that came to it either died, went back to jail, or never showed up in the first place, or they just stopped showing up and disappeared. Mm. Um, and I asked him, I said, why am I like doing okay? Like, why am I making it? Nobody else is. And he said, your willingness to tell on yourself. Mm. So, I mean, that's a big part. Like don't keep secrets. Don't hold that shame in. find a safe person, talk to them. You know, no matter what your shame tells you about you, it's not true. Mm. You're worthy of love. You deserve recovery. And I think that's like the biggest message I'd want to give anybody and that for me, I mean, the spiritual awakening has had a deepening um, and it just comes back to falling in love with yourself. And from there, it's like, you know, you just want to give that to everybody. Oh, man. And like what you what you shared, I mean, the survival rate is not good. There are so many people struggling with this. So the fact that people like you and me and other people are able to climb up to a place where they can get their head above water and then turn around and help somebody up else up and the amount of joy that's in that experience and the amount of um the excitement of of that life i mean i'm so glad that you're in it and um yeah i wish all the best for you brother i'm really happy that you came on the show and you had a chance to share everything that you did yeah thanks so much for having me um and you know yeah if you ever need anything let me know awesome man i'll be in touch as soon as i finish this book cool all right brother take care thank you so much everybody for listening to this episode don't forget to subscribe and if you learned something from kevin today be sure to check out his website and his instagram the links will be below his book the new prophet can be found on amazon and balbao express be sure to check out this book guys it is full of a lot of good quality material and i'm sure you guys are going to get something out of it so thanks again 
And as always, remember that we recover together.